Hi, everybody. I'm Sabri Beneshore from Marketplace. And I'm Tim Fernholtz from Quartz. And this is Actuality. That's an actuality in space. It's because this week we're talking about space business. It is cheaper than it has ever been to put stuff in space, thanks to the growing private space launch industry. How cheap? Well, there's a company called Spaceflight that is kind of like, yes, the Uber for rockets. <laughs> uh, Spaceflight is a company that buys launches from other firms like Elon Musk's SpaceX and then does what it calls a ride share and rents that cargo space out to people who want to send satellites to the orbit. Uh, if you wanted to send a 5-kilogram satellite, a little CubeSat, that would cost you $295,000. Uh, but there's also an Israeli group that's using this service, paying them about $10 million to launch a probe to the moon. But is this uh, cheap, really? Uh, $10 million sounds like a lot, but for perspective, when the U.S. was doing its first moon probes in the 1960s, those cost roughly $225 million each in today's money. So there is some savings. The other big change for space business is just the generally improved level of technology. So we found an estimate from Paul Ledak, who's a former IBM executive, that an iPhone is so much more sophisticated than the computers that did the Apollo rockets that, by comparison, the iPhone could guide 120 million Apollo rockets at the same time. Which is crazy. And you can just imagine if you had one of those tiny, powerful computers and you put it above the Earth and you gave it some sensors and communication powers. I mean, there's a whole world of opportunity there. Well, yes, yes. There are amazing things that we can do. We have a small problem, though, which is called space trash, which is a hail of metal shrapnel traveling at 12 miles a second or faster, which is from all the debris that's up there. Kimberly Adams, my colleague, has been reporting on this for Marketplace. Hello, Kimberly. Hey, guys. So uh, what are people so worried about in orbit? A whole lot of stuff flying around really, really fast, like 17,500 miles per hour, which means if it's an object the size of, I don't know, like a baseball, it has the force of a grenade. And there are approximately 23,000, maybe a few more, that the Air Force tracks of these objects zooming around the Earth, particularly in low Earth orbit. However, there may be up to half a million of these objects that are even smaller than that moving around that pose a threat to satellites that are up there as well as the International Space Station. Every so often they have to kind of move the International Space Station a little bit, nudge to the right, nudge to the left, so that it doesn't get hit by flying space debris. Hmm. Do you know what, like, what's the smallest thing that could pose a problem? Like, could something the size of a grain of sand do anything? Could something the size of a nut or a bolt? Nut or a bolt is definitely going to do some damage. One of the scientists to whom I was speaking for my stories on this was saying, you know, you could have a fleck of paint that could definitely dent a satellite. Or if you're talking about one of these smaller CubeSats, it could even knock it out of commission. So why is there so much stuff up there? Um, it's because as more and more countries and businesses and people keep launching things up into space, little bits and pieces of rockets and fuel boosters and anything you can think of that might possibly fall off when you're hurtling into space at thousands of miles an hour, it just gets stuck there. And if it's low enough in orbit, gravity will pull it back down, it'll burn up. But if not, then it just stays there going around really, really fast. Think the movie Gravity when a destroyed satellite 
ran into all these astronauts and terror and horror ensued. But what's much more likely to happen rather than people getting killed because of this stuff is that satellites and rockets will be damaged. I mean, there's always been some amount of space junk. Are we reaching like a some important milestone in that? So there's an interesting thing called the Kessler syndrome, which a guy named Donald Kessler came up with back in the 70s when he first started researching this. And he's like, look, as more and more things get put up into space, they're going to start running into each other, and that's going to create a cloud of debris. And those pieces of debris are going to hit more things, and those are going to create more clouds of debris, and that is going to create a domino effect that's going to result in a debris cloud, a.k.a. what we are seeing today. How is this affecting business in space? Well, there are a couple of different ways. You have the fact that anybody who wants to launch something up into space has to consider whether or not the path that they want to put it on is going to collide with debris. And so that's why the Air Force and several private companies now want to be tracking debris to greater and greater specificity. We have companies like Lockheed Martin. There's another one called Orion AST, all trying to come up with these different systems to see exactly where every single piece of debris is and where it's going to be. Also, insurance companies want to know if they are going to insure launches and equipment that's going to be placed in space, how much do they have to factor in the risk of debris in terms of what they charge for premiums? Some companies are already factoring it in. Others are waiting until more accidents happen. So what you've been talking about a little bit is sort of mitigation of this problem, how we can keep it from getting worse. But there are some companies that are saying that they're going to go solve the problem by somehow cleaning up orbit pushing some of this trash out of the way. Uh, What are some of those ideas? There are quite a few ideas. Some people want to use a special kind of laser to kind of push the debris out of the way, the smaller pieces. For the bigger pieces, some companies want to attach a tether to it to pull it into what they call a decay orbit, where the gravity will pull it in and, and make it drop to the Earth and burn up in the atmosphere. There are lots and lots of ideas, but the thing is they will cost so much money, like unbelievable amounts of money, and right now nobody's really ponying up for it. There's actually a Japanese anime show called Planetes where they created this entire show based on the premise that they're a special group of astronauts that their sole job is to go around in space and clean up orbital debris. This sounds like an amazing TV show. Right now, you know, we, we've been kind of loosey-goosey talking about, like, orbital debris fields. But right now, people can still and are still, like, constantly launching satellites and, and operating them. We're not in a situation where satellites are blowing up every day, right? That's correct. I mean, it's still a very rare occurrence. But as more and more satellites get launched into space, scientists say it's going to become more common. Kimberly Adams is a reporter with Marketplace. Thanks, Kimberly. Thanks, guys. One of the biggest opportunities for businesses in the space debris problem is a $900 million project that's been awarded to aerospace giant Lockheed Martin. It's called the Space Fence. Uh, So I'm picturing like a white picket fence 100 kilometers up. But really, I mean, what is it? I don't know. Uh, So to find that out, we're talking to uh, Greg Fonder, lead system analyst for the Space Fence program at Lockheed Martin. Hi. Hi. Thank you for having me. Greg, it's called the Space Fence, but it's really more like kind of space eyes, I guess. What exactly are you building? 
So the, the purpose of space fence is really to tackle the increased congestion in the number of space objects. Uh, so it started nearly a half century ago with a single object, and now there's 20,000 or so objects in the space catalog. What we're really looking for is what happens when that number grows to 100,000. And that's really where Space Fence comes into play. The Space Fence will be a system of one to two sensors, as well as a Space Fence Operation Center. And their purpose is to enhance the U.S. Air Force Space Surveillance Network. Are these like sensors on the ground or are these sensors floating in space? So these sensors are on the ground. There will be one on the Kwajalein Island, um, and then another one planned for Western Australia. If you want to see space objects, if you pick a spot near the equator and the Earth is rotating under the lower Earth orbit assets as well as debris, you can put a sensor there, and then looking straight up, you'll be able to see and track these debris objects as well as the assets. So would you guys actually have some sort of screen where you could see these things zipping about at their different altitudes and orbits? Really, the challenge for us comes when you're growing a catalog, um, let's say to the order of 100,000 objects, you get the added complexity of if you plotted everything on the same screen, uh, it now becomes so congested that what does an operator do? Uh, so we focused heavily on how to highlight the important objects mm. as well as create the appropriate alerts so that way the operators immediately focus on the actionable information. So where does the fence part come in? Yeah, so the, the fence part is really... If you think about it, you have a site near the equator uh, to detect these objects, uh, the space fence system looks straight up and puts a swath of radio frequency or RF energy out in the environment. And then any object that crosses over, uh, once uh, we get a detection on it, uh, then no matter where the object's going, we'll start a long arc track on that object. So the fence is really this like beam of radar energy going up and everything passes through it is like passing through the fence and then you have the information you need about where it's going? Yes, that's exactly right. And it's many beams, so we can cover uh, nearly the entire east-west plane. But won't there be a point, as you say, when there's, you know, hundreds of thousands of these things that knowing where they are is not really enough? It's, you know, like an acrobat trying to, to dodge like a laser fence in a James Bond movie. I mean, eventually you're not going to be able to get through, right? The first step in that problem is being aware that they exist. And then we can feed that back into the situational awareness that's used as part of space flight safety. Obviously, the Air Force has uh, a space monitoring system now. One comparison we often hear between, like, the, the current system and what you guys are developing is it goes from, like, uh, debris like the size of a beach ball to debris the size of a, a softball or something like that. Is that roughly accurate? Yeah, like, can you guys detect a nail? Space fence systems will see well below a, a softball-sized object, and so now you're getting into the really small pieces of debris that could actually affect a space asset. When do you guys see this as being complete and, and in the Air Force's hands? Uh, so contract award was in June 2014, uh, and we're working towards the initial operational capability, which is going to be in late 2018. Greg Fonder is the lead systems analyst for the Space Fence Project at Lockheed Martin. Thanks for joining us, Greg. All right, thank you. great that there's a space fence and that they can track all the stuff, but I just can't help but imagine that tracking a bunch of flying missiles is not enough. At some point, you have to do something about them. So to figure that out, uh, we have two researchers here with us from the RAND Corporation. Uh, Bill Welser, who's the director of RAND's Engineering and Applied Science Department, and Dave Baiocchi, who is a senior researcher at RAND. 
And they both have done research on space debris and what can be done to mitigate their danger. Hi, guys. Thanks for joining us. Nice to be here. Happy to be here. You two collaborated on a research paper that we thought was pretty interesting about the orbital debris problem. Uh, One of the things you do is you compare the problem to a bunch of existing issues that humans face, uh, including the Deepwater Horizon uh, disaster where that oil well blew up in the Gulf of Mexico. Uh, What did you learn from that comparison? So the first thing to realize, I think, is that space debris really is an environmental problem. You know, we started and realized that when humans start mining a new resource, they often just go right after the resource without thinking about the implications of what will happen as a result of that. And space really hasn't been any different. You know, when we started in the space race in the late 50s and the early 60s, both the U.S. and the Soviet Union, what is now Russia, were really just focused on putting satellites up into space. But there's sort of natural debris that happens as a result of that. You know, back in the old days when we sent up telescopes, we put, like, lens caps on, and then we, you know, they had these explosive bolts. So they'd put the lens caps on during the launch process, and then once they got up there, they'd explode the bolts, the lens cap would blow away, and then the telescope would go on about its mission. Well, these bolts are all still up there, and when all of this stuff, the rocket bodies, the wrenches, the, the small particulate... It's all moving at tens of kilometers a second, um, and even a small piece of debris at that point can and will cause a huge amount of da- uh, damage if it runs into sort of a functioning satellite. You compare space junk to uh, radon, oil spills, and emails. What are you getting at? Why make these comparisons? The reason we wanted to think about it in this way and use these other comparable examples that people could really um, – that resonated with individuals, like everyone's gotten a piece of email spam – was just to try to get the space community to back away from this active remediation, go spend billions of dollars to build this uh, on-orbit garbage truck to go pick up debris, and instead to actually characterize and then to really think about what we could do to stop any further debris generation before we go and invest a lot of money in just, you know, having the really sexy garbage truck on orbit that can pick up, you know, big pieces of debris. So... I have never heard a garbage so, truck described as sexy before. Yeah, I, I basically uh, one want in, you to... One in space is pretty sexy, I have to tell you. <laughs> okay, but but literally, though, how is space junk like spam email? Like, in what way are they so similar? So all of the analogs that we came up with, and email spam was one of them, all had a set of three common attributes. And the first is that behavioral norms themselves don't address the problem. There's a cultural sense that sending spam is not a good idea, but that's not good enough to stop spam from happening. And the second thing is that there will always be an endless supply of rule breakers. So, you know, even though, again, there's these cultural norms to suggest that we shouldn't be doing this, there's always going to be somebody, even, even as we put more spam filters in place, there's always going to be somebody who has a new idea for how to outsmart that filter. And they're going to see a business opportunity there and they're going to enter the fray. And the third piece was that the problem's never going to be considered solved because the root cause is really difficult to eliminate. Comparatively in space, then... The, the... Okay, so in regards to behavioral norms, you know, the UN recently adopted uh, a set of guidelines for how countries should behave when they're operating in space in regards to space debris. So, for example, there's countries shouldn't be using these explosive bolts anymore. But if you're a small country that's just starting out in the space business, there's no reason for you to abide by those behavioral norms, especially if it's going to cost more money or if it's going to get in the way of your primary mission. Or again, maybe you just don't care. The space fence um, is a solution, but it can't see everything all the time. 
So if you're not monitoring the situation all the time, these behavioral norms become a lot more important, right? Because if I'm a small country and I don't care, like I think I know that there's a good chance that nobody's going to be able to tell really what I'm doing up there for some activities. And therefore, why should I invest the additional uh, work up front to try to put these safeguard measures in place? What do we what do we do? I mean, do you think it's going to take basically a giant orbital debris disaster to get everyone on board? So there's a few things that I... This is Bill, right? This is Bill, yes. So the first thing is that uh, there actually have been two pretty big disasters. Uh, one in 2007, uh, China actually tested one of their anti-satellite weapons on one of their own defunct uh, weather satellites. Yeah, I remember and, that. It sounded like such a great idea. <laughs> right. And they did so without actually um, coordinating with anyone. So they created a pretty dire situation in a few orbits. Following that, in 2009, despite the prior iteration of the space fence, as well as all of the other sensors that are in the network, um, in 2009, an active Iridium satellite, a communication satellite, collided with, again, a dead Cosmos satellite, a Russian satellite, and created a lot of debris. While the immediate effect in the orbits where those objects were were pretty significant, it, it proved that space is still pretty big. Space being big doesn't isn't a reason that we should just kind of go at it and, with reckless abandon and, and pollute it. Um, it is something to remember um, when considering this, um, this problem. And it's one of the reasons why Dave and I have really been, our research has led us to say mitigation is, you know, by by far more important than remediation. So we mitigation those terms around. Can you define mitigation and remediation for folks? Yes. So mitigation is, you know, designing your system so that it doesn't generate debris. And remediation is this idea that you're going to actively go out and touch it. You're going to go and grab that old satellite or grab that uh, lens cap or whatnot and bring it back down um, either through the atmosphere to burn up or put it into another orbit, um, uh, you know, to get it out of the way. But it's a very much an active process, which, by the way, we haven't done. I know you guys are not focusing, and for good reason, on the pie-in-the-sky space garbage truck, (laughs) but what would that space garbage truck look like? There are a lot of suggested technologies. Um, from a credibility standpoint, I would rely on what we know that is is tested, and there's nothing that meets that criteria. Nothing? So, Not even like a giant space tarp? <laughs> no. People talk about, you know, big balloons and big amorphous blobs, and it, it, it's just none of it's been tested. You know, if you look at physics and evaluate it based on physics, like these things, yeah, they, I mean, the physics loop closes. But... An environment where you can't go and touch something um, that isn't working correctly very easily is a pretty tough environment to, you know, expect your your technology to work right away. Yeah, got it. So what what do you guys see as the sort of obstacle to the need for coordination right now, and how could it be fixed? Yeah, like, why can't just everyone have, like, okay, here we have 10 rules, like, don't... No like, more explosive bolt, bolts. Like, bolt down your space crap. Okay. <laughs> so there, there, those rules do exist. I think that one of the challenges is enforcement. I mean, what happens when, when someone doesn't do that? And when you have some of these startup firms, and I'm not trying to vilify startups in space, I actually think it's quite exciting that um, companies are able to build 
satellites and launch them for on the order of hundreds of thousands of dollars versus tens of millions of dollars. But how do you hold those people accountable when they don't follow the rules? And space is a global problem. You know, the first kind of global entity that you might think of is the United Nations. And while the United Nations has been quite active in this space, their enforcement mechanisms are focused on the nation state and not on commercial firms, which means they don't have a really big hammer to hit those firms with. Uh, aside from you know space debris remediation, there's a lot of excitement about potential commercial activities in space right now. Would you guys say that before that can reach you know the potential of its big advocates, we really need to get a handle on the space debris problem? I don't think it's the it's the item sitting in the critical path here. Yeah, um, space is a big place. We've had two accidents over the last ten years, and you know that's expected because every year we send more and more stuff up and. The population keeps growing. The big question that needs to be answered is, well, where's the threshold? Are we at a panic point right now? Are we going to be there in 50 years? And that's a hard problem to quantify. And I want to be clear, no one has. We certainly know what's up there, but we don't know. Nobody's come up with an effective way to assess the risk of that population. The first step in this, in addressing the debris problem, is measuring the debris problem. So yes, the country is building a new space fence. But that space fence is part of a much larger network of existing sensors that are good at measuring different types of things in space. So we have different orbits. The space fence is really good at measuring things that are in low Earth orbit. So like the weather satellites, the, the satellites that provide the images to Google Maps, that sort of thing. Hmm. On, the other, on the flip side of that would be objects that are much farther out that are used for communication purposes or the direct TV satellites. You know, you mentioned, <laughs> you know, what's it going to take a big catastrophe? And Bill and I always joke that what we think what would, what's going to take is sort of a direct TV satellite going out on Super Bowl Sunday, right? Like that's going to cause people to come to action. I, I would, the only thing I would add to what Dave just said is that the one kind of unknown here is how does this narrative change when we start seeing space tourists losing a satellite, uh, you know, a couple you know, tens of millions of dollars worth of a satellite is one thing, but losing a human life is a whole other thing. Um, NASA takes, you know, protection of the astronauts and um, on the International Space Station, I mean, very, very seriously. And that thing is, that um, system is moved on a regular basis to avoid space debris. I think that having more people at risk could change the narrative, at least for those low Earth orbits. Uh, it's much different than thinking about losing a piece of hardware. Thanks, guys. I really appreciate it. Dave Baoki and Bill Welser are researchers at the RAND Corporation. Thanks, guys. So, Tim, I'll, I would like to give you my initial takeaway. And I would like to hear it. <laughs> First of all, I'm devastated that we don't have a sexy garbage truck or giant space tarp or that we're not even really at the point where we kind of need all that stuff. I guess what I found interesting was that we're still at the point where we just need to reduce the quantity of space junk being created. Well, I think, Sabri, uh, you are part of the problem because I think the lesson that the RAND guys are trying to teach us is the same lesson perhaps we learned from, like, Deepwater Horizon. As much as we love to rely on, like... Uh, technology and like heroic entrepreneurs to save us it's, it's like armageddon the movie of course this crazy drill and this band of people can save us but in reality what will save us is like 
recycling and like <laughs> boring stuff like not using explosive bolts as much as I too love the idea of a sexy orbital garbage machine. I mean, you're totally right. I mean, like you are totally right. I I think I I feel like especially in an age of iPhones where you can just have an app to do everything for you, it's just like what the answer is clearly lasers. The answer is clearly lasers and genetically engineered monkeys that will just fly up there and get the trash. But in reality, it's much more prosaic. But still, you know one thing I don't quite understand? Why is it so hard to get people to make less space junk? Like, why is that even, why is that hard? Well, I think they explained it. I mean, basically, there's no, there are no cops in space. You know, the UN is an organization that can make rules, but as they said, their enforcement powers are limited. So, you know, if, and it's also hard to tell who's breaking the rules. All right, and now for something completely different, but actually not that different. In the grand tradition of the surprising discovery, which is a news item that raises your eyebrow, we report on those at Quartz, just a single eyebrow for the monobrow, we have a surprising discovery that's completely connected to what we're talking about this week. It's space junk, it's coming back to Earth, and it's interesting because it's probably something we put up there in the first place. This is a piece of space junk called... WT1190F, but I prefer to think of it as WTF. Uh, It's six feet long, and it's coming back to Earth. Scientists think it might be a piece of the Apollo moon rockets that's just been hanging out in space for the last couple of decades. Um, But they're hoping to find it when it falls and study it to see how man-made objects survive in space for so long. It's not going to burn up? Apparently a lot of it will burn up, but it's large enough that they think there will be remains. Hmm. And they don't have any idea what it is or where it came from. Well, the thought is that it's a piece of a rocket stage from one of the Apollo missions. Uh, That's just a thought. Well, it's a thought from Jonathan McDowell, an astrophysicist at the Harvard-Smithsonian Center for Astrophysics. But it could still be aliens. Uh, I don't have enough information to rule that out. Well, let's just say that I do. Sabri wants to believe. We do have enough information to rule it out. (laughs) Okay, that is all the time we have. If you want to learn more about rodent parts, uh, satellites, space debris, or anything else in the global economy, just go to marketplace.org or qz.com. While you're at Quartz, sign up for our daily brief. It is the perfect way to start the day. And uh, by the way, we would love to know what you think of this podcast, what you like and what you don't, uh, what topics we should take on, whether we have too much NPR podcast voice. Is that a problem? <laughs> There's been this thing going around online. I've gotten like 85 people tag me in it. Technically, you don't even work for NPR. Marketplace is APM, not NPR. Um, please email us your thoughts on the internecine battles of public radio at mpqz at marketplace.org or leave us a message at 802-430-6779. And you can reach out on Twitter. I'm at Sabritree. And Tim is Tim Fernholtz with a Z. Uh, Jake Gorski made our lovely theme song. Uh, thanks to him. Thanks to our producer, Claire Tennisgetter, and to our overlords at Marketplace and Quartz. You've been listening to Actuality, the Marketplace Quartz podcast. We'll be back soon with more stories from around the world. See you then.